Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 4. My name is Zach Twomley. You're listening to the fourth part of the Long War, which is a very special war. And one that provides us with a lot of incredible stories, incredible events, and incredible characters. So... Thanks for stopping by. If this is your first time listening to When Diplomacy Fails, then you're very, very welcome. If it's your numerous second or third or fourth or three millionth time, then thanks also for stopping by. You guys are great. I love my listeners. And if you would like to find out more about When Diplomacy Fails, everything on social media and on Patreon and everything else, if you're looking to support us, then please do check us out at wdfpodcast.com. You can check out our blog, The Vassal State, and you can check out the shop. There's so much to do with When Diplomacy Fails. So I hope you guys will check out all the different spheres of When Diplomacy Fails. And When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. So thanks for listening, guys. And I hope you enjoy this latest installment. Hello and welcome, history, friends, patrons all, to the fourth installment of our examination of the Long War, the series of interconnected conflicts which waged from the early 1680s to 1699. Last time we concluded our examination of Louis XIV's machinations and left him where he was for the moment, to pick up on what arguably could be considered the main event of this period in history, the last siege of Vienna on the 12th of September 1683. As an event, its significance is undeniable, as it established the pattern of general retreat and decline in the Ottoman Empire, and effectively pushed the Turks off the fearful pedestal they had once occupied. By the time the 18th century dawned, the Ottoman Turks became, in the description of one historian, a curiosity rather than a terrible menace. As hard as it would have been for a contemporary of Europe to imagine the Turks no longer posing a grave threat to Western Europe in the early 1680s, in this episode we're going to engage in an equally challenging exercise in imagination. To provide the necessary background for the Habsburg-Ottoman rivalry which would come to dominate the Siege of Vienna and military efforts thereafter, we must venture into the early 16th century, where Europe looked very different to what we may imagine today. This was a world in which the all-powerful Hungary ruled over vassal states in the Balkans, as Serbia, Bosnia, Wallachia, and Moldavia, where the Hanseatic League grouped together varied Baltic cities, where the Kalmar Union joined Scandinavia as one, 
and where the Jagiellonian dynasty drew Poland, Lithuania, Bohemia, Croatia, and several other states together. Into this version of Europe, Francis I of France waged a traditional war for influence and power against the Habsburgs in Italy. In this case, the Habsburgs were led by the incomparably powerful Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, King of Spain, Duke of Burgundy, and one of the most formidable rulers Europe had ever seen, with combined resources to dwarf all rivals. Across the Channel, Henry VIII was probably feeling dissatisfied with one of his wives. It was a world of constant crises and rapidly fluctuating balances of power, and in the distant east, coming like a scourge from the once Christian city of Constantinople, was the Turk, heading one of the most fearsome and ambitious empires the world had yet to see. The sultan of this empire, Suleiman I, great-grandson of Mehmed II, who had conquered Constantinople in 1453, now had his eyes on upending this European balance by striking directly at the centrepiece of medieval European civilization, Hungary. Let's see how it all went down then as I take you to the morning of the 29th of August, 1526. Thus, in that nation, dignities, honours, offices, etc. are the rewards of virtue and merit, as on the other side, improbity, sloth, idleness, are among the most despicable things in the whole world, and by this means they flourish, bear sway and enlarge the bounds of their empire every day more and more. But we Christians, to our shame be it spoken, live at another manner of rate. The Austrian ambassador to Constantinople gives his view on Ottoman society in the 16th century. Louis II, King of Hungary, Croatia and Bohemia, overlord of Serbia, Wallachia and Moldavia, ruled a powerful kingdom which hid a terrible secret. On the surface, Louis II's monarchy had never seemed more supreme. Not only did his house of Jagiellonia secure marriage agreements with the Habsburgs, as his sister married Charles V's brother, and Louis II himself married Mary, Charles' cousin, Tying the ruling house of Jagiellonia with the Habsburgs made good strategic sense, as it would make the guarantee of strategic alliances with Hungary's neighbours that much easier, while it also provided some measure of unity against the advance of the Ottoman Empire, whose new sultan, crowned in 1520, harboured naked ambitions for the expansion of his empire at Hungary's expense. When Sultan Suleiman sent his envoy to collect the expected tribute from Louis II's court in that Sultan's coronation year, as was customary, Louis had the envoy executed and his head sent back to the new Sultan as proof of Hungary's power and defiance in the face of the Turkish threat. Louis, only crowned King of Hungary in 1516, felt as though he had much to prove, and he anticipated that the Papal States and the Habsburgs would join him in a crusade against the Islamic Turk. Louis gave the impression that Hungary's position of power at the centre of Europe was unassailable, 
that its capital in Buda was secure and that the country itself was united behind their young monarch's cause. But then, Louis II's Kingdom of Hungary hid a terrible secret. There were deep and lasting cracks in Louis's kingdom which stretched back to the reign of his father Vladislav II who had granted overarching rights and exemptions to the kingdom's nobility and had sold off crown lands in return for the nobility's concessions for Vladislav's policies. To preserve his popularity in Hungary, as Bohemia was where the king hailed from originally, Vladislav seemed willing to sell off the kitchen sink. The mark of prestige for bringing his house of Jagiellonia to rule over so many united kingdoms seemed enough, and indeed it would have been enough, but Vladislav did not think of the long-term consequences. You see, by selling off so much of the Hungarian silverware, King Vlad found that he had little resources left to stock the granaries, pay the soldiers, or maintain the castles. Just as he seemed to be realising how desperately far he had gone, Vladislav then died. This incredibly short-sighted economic and domestic policy which his son and successor, Louis II, inherited in 1516, represented the worst of both worlds. Not only was the crown effectively broke and powerless after pawning off its assets, but the nobility had grown used to this state of affairs and each of the families sought to use this weakening of the crown to their own advantage. And it wasn't as though Hungary hadn't known defeat before. In fact, Hungary had known defeat at the hands of the Turks before. In the years leading up to the Ottoman seizure of Constantinople, Sultan Mehmed had proved utterly invincible against the Hungarian forces, and their repeated defeats over the 1440s essentially broke the back of Hungarian military might, never to be so impressive or towering again. Efforts at rebuilding always seemed under the shadow and threat of a renewed Ottoman offensive, yet Hungary did manage to cling on to its Balkan vassals despite the danger. With the death of Mehmed in 1481, the periodical raiding of Hungary and its vassals ended, and Sultan Bayezid II succeeded to the throne. Bayezid granted Hungary a period of respite during his 30-year reign, as Safavid Persia proved immensely troublesome during this period of time. Bayezid's successor, Sultan Selim, then focused in particular on conquering Egypt and bringing that territory of the Mamluk Turks into the Ottoman Turk fold. Selim expanded the empire by an incredible 70% during his eight-year reign, a feat incomparable to any emperor, sultan, or king to follow him, yet it was his son Suleiman that would be known as the Magnificent. Completing this run of four good sultans then, Suleiman the Magnificent ascended to the throne in 1520. With Egypt absorbed, Persia quiet, and his power base secured, Suleiman strikes me as that lucky role you'd get in Total War, where your heir just so happens to be in the right place at the right time for your empire, with all the skills and tools necessary to succeed. After 40 years of relative safety from the Ottoman focus, Louis II managed to perfectly doom his weakened kingdom by directly provoking the Ottomans into action. The murder of an ambassador, particularly one who was in the business of collecting agreed-upon tribute, and the posting of his head back to its master, was as clear a message as could ever be sent. Louis was challenging the might of the Ottomans for the sake of his own legacy and legend. Where his ancestors had failed, Louis believed that he could orchestrate his kingdom's resources towards the defeat of his kingdom's great and terrible foe. This foe in Sultan Suleiman faced a similar challenge, 
Kier was the ruler of the kingdom who had repeatedly intervened to frustrate Ottoman ambitions and usurp the honour of the Turks. Here was the representative of the kingdom who had beaten the Ottomans back from the gates of Belgrade, his great-grandfather Mehmed II's only notable loss. Suleiman, much like his great Hungarian rival, was out to right the wrongs of history, and now this rival had given him the perfect excuse. Louis II may have been provoking a dragon he could never slay, but he at least had one thing going for him. In a forgotten piece of history, Louis made use of the Bohemian town's silver mine for the sake of his currency. Coins formed there were known as Joachim's Thalers, after the mine, Joachim's Thal, from which they came. Because people are lazy, and because I can't really pronounce the name anyway, this was shortened to Thaler, and over the coming decades, the type of silver Thaler coin saw spin-offs created across the Holy Roman Empire, Scandinavia, and southeastern Europe. Yet, it was once the Dutch started creating their own form of Thalers that the importance of Louis II's act becomes apparent. Commissioning a special version of Thalers to celebrate their booming trade network, the Dutch minted silver Thalers with a lion on one side. The Dutch called these coins Lion Daler, which became, once the Dutch exported this currency to the New Netherland region, Dollar. So yes, Louis II, King of Hungary, Bohemia, Croatia, and really bad foreign policy decisions, is also responsible for why you, American, Canadian, Australian, and so many other listeners, call your currency what you call it, the dollar. If not for Louis' act of commissioning the silver mines in the Joachimsthal region, we may well have called our monies something else completely different entirely. So with that bit of trivia out of the way, Louis II bore witness to a rapid deterioration in his position in the early 1520s. As he urged his nobles to cooperate, a successful siege of Belgrade was carried forward in 1521 by the Ottomans, and as quickly as Europe drew and exhaled a breath, one of Hungary's most formidable fortresses now lay in enemy hands. Worse was yet to come. By this point in European history, it should be noted that Francis of France had broken every established protocol with his Ottoman alliance, a watershed moment in European relations, which will feature in a spin-off WDF Things episode at some point down the line. Francis's alliance was not necessarily the driving force behind Sultan Suleiman's decision to invade up the Danube towards Hungary, but it certainly helped knowing that French aid would not be forthcoming. By July 1526, an Ottoman army, nearly 50,000 strong, had struck terror into several Hungarian nobles, but a crippling division remained among those same noble families. Geography tended to determine whether nobles would expend their resources in defence of their lord, King Louis, or whether they would abandon him, believing that the danger was no concern of theirs when they were sitting in their distant holdings. So now we're back to the date that I said I'd bring you to at the start of the episode, the 29th of August 1526, and on that morning Louis II had assembled an army similar in style to that of Francis I of France. It was roughly 35,000 men strong, depending on who you ask, but it consisted mostly of heavily armoured knights of the old style, and Louis had chosen the battlefield of Mohacs, a plain intersected with several swamps, which made mobility difficult and opened the Hungarian army up to the speedy counterattacks of the Turks. So, yeah, good job, Louis. Facing them were approximately 50,000 men under the command of Sultan Suleiman himself, though the number is, of course, disputed. In the event, the Turkish weight of numbers, but above all professionalism, proved the difference. When Suleiman's right flank was pushed back, 
he counterattacked on the left with the elite Janissaries and shattered the Hungarian line, throwing it into disarray. The Hungarian cannon had been placed at a disadvantaged position, and their Turkish counterparts overwhelmed the Hungarian centre with repeated musket and cannon volleys. With the heavy knights unable to effectively charge or manoeuvre away from the danger, they were caught in several devastating volleys and cut to pieces. Thousands died in the process, and a great Ottoman offensive then broke the centre of the Hungarian line, leading Louis to flee. He would be thrown from his horse repeatedly while crossing a river, and would eventually drown from that process, with no air. While Louis's death at the Battle of Mohacs was bad, the worst part about it was the fact that he had no air. With no air left on the hung- Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hungarian, Bohemian, or Croatian thrones, Suleiman couldn't believe his own fortunes. Cautiously advancing towards the capital at Buda, which was sacked, the Ottomans actually retreated for another decade before completing the job in 1541. By the time they besieged the city then, they planned to stay for keeps. On the other hand, by 1541, another party had crept into the power vacuum left by Louis' sudden death and departure, the Habsburgs. The 1526 Battle of Mohács is generally seen as the beginning of Ottoman domination over Hungary and the end of that entity's fortunes as a political actor in Europe. It would subsequently be divided into three parts, with Royal or Habsburg Hungary, Transylvania as an Ottoman vassal, and Ottoman Hungary which contained Buda. Yet arguably another major talking point in addition to the Ottoman trouncing of Hungary was the implications for European relations following Louis' death. As the Ottomans cautiously waited to see if the Hungarians could muster anything against them, the Habsburgs rushed in to fill the void, occupying Bohemia, portions of Croatia and, of course, Hungary. The division of Hungary between the Habsburgs and Ottomans meant that the region was destined to become a battlefield for the next 150 years. 
It would play host to a constantly shifting border amidst the ambitions and powers of the princes of Transylvania and their Ottoman overlords. As tensions increased and eased between the Habsburgs and Ottomans, the region came to represent little more than a wasteland brimming with selected fortresses. Suleiman may have consolidated his position with the seizure of Buda, but by 1541 the lines had been irredeemably drawn. The Sultan had by then made two attempts at an even greater prize than merely Buda, because he had been busy striking at the Habsburg capital, Vienna. The defeat of Hungary thus had more immediate consequences than either Louis or his divided nobles could have imagined, with their shockingly rapid fall from the European scene, Literally bare expanses of land stood between the Ottoman and the Habsburg lands. Only long distances and the forces of nature would prevent the arrival of a third Turkish host from appearing outside the walls of Vienna again. In a sense, it was almost fitting that these two empires, the Ottoman and the Habsburg, should face off against one another. In two great respects, the religious and the symbolic, the House of Habsburg and the House of Osman competed. In the realm of religion, Charles V was at the time Hungary fell, the Holy Roman Emperor. He was the head of Christendom, as approved by the Pope. There could be no ambiguity over his spiritual command, just as there could be no debate over Suleiman's position in Islam. Not only was he the Caliph of the Empire, he was also the protector of all of Islam's holy sites, and it was his empire, not Charles's, that continued to hold Jerusalem. In this sense, the two houses were competing on more than merely dynastic lines, for both of their dynasties had been fused with the influence and symbolism which went along with their claims to speak politically for their respective faiths. On the subject of symbolism, a forgotten aspect of the era following the Battle of Mohács and the 150 years up to the Siege of Vienna is that both the Sultan and the Holy Roman Emperor claimed not merely leadership, but the status as the successor of the greatest empire known to man, Rome. How both houses, from vastly different cultures and on different points of the world, managed to pull off this feat is a story worth telling. The Habsburgs claimed legitimacy as the kings of Rome can be sourced from the coronation of the first Holy Roman Emperor in 800. It was then that Charlemagne, or Charlemagne, whatever you feel like, was invested with the spiritual and symbolic powers necessary to legitimise his rule. The Habsburgs, as the successors to Charlemagne's Holy Roman experiment, saw themselves as the inheritors of this title. It is, obviously enough, in their very name, the Holy Roman Empire. While Voltaire was content to deride the Holy Roman Empire as not holy, not Roman, and not an empire, the actual facts of that sprawling institution are in some ways less important than the actual claims they declared. Ridiculous as it sounded, Charles V, as much as Leopold on the eve of the Siege of Vienna, claimed and believed that their legitimacy was descended from that of Charlemagne, and that they were the successors of the Roman Empire. However tenuous this claim seems to us, it was taken very seriously, and not simply because the Habsburgs were massive fanboys of the Romans. It was an acknowledgement of their link to history, spiritually blessed and politically legitimised by the papacy, and it had been so for 700 years by the time Charles ascended to the Holy Roman throne. By this point, European tradition alone dictated that the Holy Roman Emperors, and therefore the Habsburgs, were the legal inheritors of this past. They were the successors of Rome, and it was up to them to maintain that empire in its current iteration. 
Perhaps the loudest voice raised in opposition to this claim would have come from the other significant actor who claimed the exact same thing. Suleiman the Magnificent did not need to appeal to overbearing or convoluted ceremonials to grant his claims to Sultan Irum legitimacy. By right of conquest, Suleiman's great-grandfather Mehmed II had seized Constantinople in 1453. While we may call that Eastern Roman Empire spin-off of Rome the Byzantine Empire, the Byzantines considered and called themselves Romans. In fact, many an envoy would leave Vienna in disgust, having travelled from Constantinople to negotiate with the Holy Roman Empire. This disgust came from the imperial envoys insisting on referring to themselves as Roman, despite the fact that the very real Roman successor state remained in place to the east. The Ottomans, to cut a long story short, merely inherited the Byzantine problem of recognition when they made Constantinople their home. Conquering the Eternal City made them no more legitimate than the Byzantines had been for simply sitting there for the last 1,000 years, at least in the Habsburgs' eyes. To the Holy Roman Emperors and thus the Habsburgs, there was one Roman Emperor and he was crowned by the Papacy in Rome itself. While the nature of relations between the Papacy and the Holy Roman Emperors changed over time, with the growth of different rivalries and opportunistic alliances, the fundamentals of the imperial claims to legitimacy remained deeply rooted in their historic past, and thus deeply at odds, first with the Byzantines and then the conquering Ottomans. The key difference one appreciates is that while the Byzantines were certainly offended and never went out of their way to please either the Imperials or the Habsburgs, the Ottomans could actually do something about this snub. What was more, whereas the lazy and unwieldy Byzantines had merely rested on their laurels of inheriting the Roman Empire title, the Ottoman Turk had conquered. He had earned the right through warfare to call himself master and inheritor of Rome. The Holy Romans hadn't conquered anything at all, and couldn't even muster a force to save their Hungarian relatives when the Turks had invaded. Andrew Wheatcroft, man who'll make numerous appearances in our Long War series, wrote a stunning book called Enemy at the Gate, and he put this whole situation most succinctly when he wrote that Ottomans regarded the Holy Roman Emperors of the West as usurpers to a title which belonged by right to them. They would refer to the Habsburgs as mere Dukes of Austria, or at best a petty king. This curious mirror image of two rival claimants to the same estate underpinned the developing rivalry between the two dynasties. The Habsburgs believed that their duty lay in restoring Rome eastwards, for one of their proudly born titles was King of Jerusalem. The Ottomans believed it was their destiny to reclaim the Roman Empire eastwards from Constantinople. This gave an added potency to the contest. With this critical disagreement over titles and legitimacy, the rivalry between the Ottomans and Habsburgs was about much more than mere religious differences and the struggle for dominance. Motivated by the political and symbolic as much as the religious, Ottoman sultans would always see the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperors as an affront to their authority. From the 1540s, when the Kingdom of Hungary no longer stood in between the Habsburg and Ottoman lands, the sultan finally had the opportunity to actually do something about it. Under such circumstances, there could be no compromise, not when a pretender to the throne existed so tantalisingly close to the fringes of one's domains. Positioned as they now were to expand further west than ever before and fulfil their destinies as the successors of Rome, Ottoman sultans would engage in a furious struggle with their Habsburg neighbours for the next 150 years.
As history progressed, both powers engaged in their own proxy wars, as the use of propaganda, symbolism, religion and, of course, military might was brought to bear. The Ottomans were typically cast as bloodthirsty, merciless, heathen barbarians, interested only in the raping and looting of the lands they encountered for the sake of their lazy and debauched sultan kings. Making great use of fear, the Ottoman Turks were generally regarded with something approaching disgust, and their ability to accumulate great victories on the battlefield was explained away by their command of great armies of slaves that they could call upon to do their bidding. On the other side of the fence, the Ottomans depicted the Habsburgs as ignorant, as uncultured, and sometimes also as disgusting and unhygienic. Those that have listened to the excellent podcast Our Fake History will find the following quotes familiar, but for those that haven't listened to Our Fake History, check out Sebastian Major's podcast, which aims to dispel myths in history and gave a great deal of attention to the last siege of Vienna earlier this year in a three-part series. So that again, Our Fake History. And if you didn't know, we did a collaboration with him and that'll be appearing in October. So yeah, look out for that. So, when we are seeking to discern what the Ottomans actually thought of the Habsburgs, we can look at what their contemporaries wrote about them, in particular Emperor Leopold. Mehmed Zili, known to Western audiences as Evliya Çelebi, was a travelling Turkish writer and explorer who made his name by recounting his experiences of the Western portion of Europe in the mid-1660s. Çelebi's accounts are famous for being gloriously exaggerated, but They do shed light, if nothing else, on the perceptions which the Ottomans held by that point about their Habsburg rivals. His so-called travel log consists of ten volumes, most of which has yet to be translated, though translation projects are underway. In an account which captures the disgust which surrounded Ottoman feelings about the Habsburgs and their emperor during Chalebi's visit, Leopold I, we are given the following glorious details. Chalebi wrote on Leopold, One may almost doubt whether the Almighty really intended in him to create a man. He is of medium height, beardless, narrow-hipped, not really fat and corpulent, but not exactly haggard. By Allah's decision, he has a bottle-shaped head, pointed at the top like the cap of a dancing dervish or gourd pear. His brows are flat as a board, and he has thick black eyebrows set far apart, under which his light brown eyes, round as circles and rimmed with black lashes, gleam like the orbs of a horned owl. His face is long and sharp like a fox, with ears as big as children's slippers and a red nose that shines like an unripe grape and is as big as an eggplant from the Maria. From his broad nostrils, into each of which he could stick three fingers at a time, droop hairs as long as the moustaches of a thirty-year-old swashbuckler, growing in confused angles with the hair on his upper lip and with his black whiskers, which reach as far as his ears. His lips are as swollen as a camel's, and his mouth could hold a whole loaf of bread at one time. His ears are too big for his face and wag like a jackal's as he walks. Whenever he speaks, the spittle spurts and splashes over from his mouth and camel lips, as if he had vomited. Then the dazzlingly beautiful page boys who stand by him wipe away the spittle with huge red handkerchiefs. He himself constantly curls his locks with a comb. His fingers look like cucumbers from Langa. By the will of Almighty God, all the emperors in this house are equally repulsive in appearance, and in all their churches and houses, as well as on their coins, the emperor is depicted with his ugly face. Indeed, if any artist depicts him with a handsome face, he has the man executed, for he considers that he has disfigured him, for these emperors are proud and boastful of their ugliness. 
Oddly specific details of Chalebi aside, it is worth considering the disconnect between the real and fake perpetuated by the courts of Vienna and Constantinople. Even if neither side truly understood or knew the other, through the fighting of countless wars which dragged into the 17th century and ceased just in time for both sides to fight their own battles, with the Habsburgs occupied first by the Thirty Years' War and then by Louis XIV up to the late 1670s, and the Ottomans occupied by affairs further east and in their Arabian territories, the ambitions of one Fasil Ahmed Pasha, Grand Vizier to Sultan Mehmed IV, finally torpedoed the long period of peace between the two rivals, actually as far back as 1663. Informed that his subject would honour him with a great and glorious victory, the second Grand Vizier, coming from the vaunted Caprulu political dynasty, set out to achieve the kind of fame and renown which only military victory could bring. As the military machine of the Ottoman Empire whirred into life and the vassals of the Sultan were thrown together, a similar scene was occurring thousands of miles away. Holy Roman Emperor Leopold I was assembling his own Holy League to fight the Ottoman threat. The penalty of failing to come to his aid, Leopold claimed, would be a repeat of the Battle of the Mohacs 150 years before. The historical memory of the region began to provoke a limited European response in 1663, as the greatest threat to Habsburg sovereignty marched ever westwards. Next time, 20 years before the Siege of Vienna itself, we'll see how this incredible military machine aimed at the destruction of their great rival, yet again. Until then though, thanks for listening to our latest episode on the Long War. My name is Zach History Friends and I'll be seeing you all very soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.